Imagine a world. Imagine the city that you live in is all full of people who all have the same religious beliefs. They have all the same political beliefs. Um, you know, it may, and maybe there's like some minor disagreement to the extent of which you believe in something. But in general, you know, uh, if you're all voting for one of two candidates, you're going to all vote for the same candidate. Um, you know, everyone has a job in this town that you live in and everyone has a unique responsibility to keep that town moving. You know, it's, you know, you maybe, maybe your day starts out where, uh, you are the town's pickle farmer and your day starts by, uh, going into your garden and, and picking your cucumbers and, you know, because that's a pretty seasonal thing, maybe you also, uh, offer to, to clean people's houses, you know, and that's your thing. That's the assignment that you have. And after you pick your cucumbers and you, you know, you pickle them and put them in jars, maybe you take a a batch of pickles that are ready and you go to the town center where everyone is meeting up and you all trade goods and services. There's no price on anything. There's just, Hey, I love your pickles, man. You know, maybe you go up to, maybe you go up to Doug and Doug owns the dairy farm and Doug has the milk. And so you trade a jar of your fantastic pickles for a week's supply of Doug's milk, you know, and then go over to Lucy and Lucy, uh, she has the, the poultry farm. And so you trade Lucy for some eggs and maybe some chickens, some, some chicken breasts that you're going to cook up later. And you go through town and when you're out of your pickles, then you start making deals. You know, you'll go clean someone's house in exchange for, uh, you know, them changing the oil in your car or whatever the case may be, you know, everyone's pretty self-sufficient, but, uh, everyone has unique things that they all bring to the table and everyone lives in harmony. And boy, does that sound like a bunch of crap? There's no way that will ever, ever work in this world. Not on this planet. No, sir. All right. You can't put, uh, two people who are married to each other in the same room and have them just be completely self-sufficient without them wanting to kill each other. It doesn't work that way. Human beings aren't wired that way. There is an element of tribalism that I think we all possess, but when it comes down to it, we are all very selfish and we want things done our way, which is a very particular way. And you may be the most liberal person on the planet, but you will not be able to work with someone on a permanent basis. And we are going to talk about why that doesn't work this week on Our Weird World. Our Weird World. All 
Welcome to Our Weird World. I'm your host, John Henson, and my sinuses are revolting against me. Uh, My head feels very full and stuffed, and I just, I feel like my brain is a foggy mess right now. But we're going to try to get through this episode uh, talking about some failed utopias. Uh, you know, I, I think, obviously I think my example at the beginning was pretty ridiculous, but that was the general gist of what some people think is possible. And those people are way too optimistic for their own good. Like I'm all about being positive and having a positive mindset. If that's how you can make it through life, but you also have to be realistic and look, there just needs to be a hierarchy to things. There needs to be structure uh, there needs to be order and consequences for uh, when that order is disrupted. You know, uh, and and you know, it socialism, communism, that sort of thing gets a bad rap because there were some people who took advantage of it and still take advantage of it and make it look bad. But I mean, look, communism and socialism on paper, great in theory, great in theory. What a wonderful place this world would be if everyone pulled their own weight and contributed and everything was of equal value and just we could all live in harmony, but that's just not going to happen, right? But that did not stop some people from trying. There were a couple of uh, towns in Massachusetts and then one out in Washington state that really, that really went for it. And we're going to see how that went. Let's jump into story time. Story time. In 1841, a former Unitarian minister named George Ripley and his wife Sophia founded a communal living community. That's redundant. But, uh, you know, this community uh, named Brook Farm. Uh, out uh, just on the outskirts of Boston. Uh, Ripley had gotten tired of this Unitarian lifestyle, which Unitarianism was just the sect of Christianity, one of tens of thousands. But basically, Unitarians rejected the uh, idea of the Trinity, all right? They they rejected that, the, the this broader notion that God is three being, you know, God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. They rejected that idea completely. Which makes sense because that's not in the Bible. But we can. This is not a religious podcast, you guys. We don't have to get into that debate. Um, Ripley's Utopia uh, was designed to be a haven for the transcendentalist, which was this other new sect of Christianity that had popped up that focused more on feelings and 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 how you felt versus the uh, intellectualism and like really staunch spiritualism that the Unitarians were practicing. So, you know, where the Unitarians were more focused on being educated, which somewhat ironic, but um, being educated, being very spiritual, the transcendentalists were just like, man, let's just be in our feelings, bro. Let's just... Let's let's let the energy of nature just guide our path, man. And so uh, Ripley uh, kind of 
went into doing this. And along with it being its own town, though, Brook Farm was also a corporation. Um, Ripley's kind of vision for this town slash company included residents receiving profits from the town and free tuition for its students. And so, you know, kind of thinking of it in more of a modern sense, it would almost be like if the United States, if, um, you know, rather than us paying taxes to the government every year, the government in turn paid us with money that was left over from the budget from all of the other tariffs and taxes and money that it had generated over the course of the year. Now, that's obviously very ridiculous because somehow, and I have yet to figure out how this works, every single year, the United States federal budget is always way more expensive and has, and calls for way more money than the taxes that it's bringing in. And so there's always this huge budget deficit and we're getting deeper and deeper into debt. And like the... It's really complicated, but like in theory, for this example, there, the United States would create a budget and they would probably say, oh, hey, there's going to be this big surplus at the end of the year. We're just going to give that all back to you guys because we love our citizens. Anyway, uh, <laughs> residents were basically asked to work 300 days a year, which is pretty good. All right. That's two months of vacation. So that's a solid deal. Uh, and in return, they would have, you know, a, a house. They would be given a house and a place to live. Men and women were paid equally, which in 1841 was completely unheard of at the time. Still pretty unheard of today because women aren't real people, you guys. Like they're people, but uh, coming from a white male, they are obviously lesser people all right their brains are smaller they're not as strong they can't do certain things that men can do so of course they don't deserve to get paid equally i'm kidding of course but like brook farm at least in this instance way way ahead of its time uh unfortunately things went south pretty quickly uh for starters 300 days uh of work the way they had their um schedule structured because a lot of this was very manual labor and they had to get these days worked in order to make it, you know, they wouldn't work during the winter months when there wasn't anything they could possibly do for the most part. You know, there wasn't any uh, way to tend crops in the winter uh, or anything like that. And so they had crammed 300 days of work and it basically equated to about six days per week of working. And even more, Ripley quickly adopted this um, policy of associationism, which um, basically was an early form of socialism in which seniority was rewarded over everything. So basically, not not necessarily everyone was on equal footing, but the longer that you had been in Brook Farm, the more benefits that you got. And so um, this, so yeah, so like the younger that you were, the less appealing job that you had. So like teenagers probably are shoveling manure and cleaning toilets and doing, you know, generally the least desirable jobs where like the older people and the people who had been in Brook Farm the longest, you know, maybe they just uh, point at the manure that, that needs to be picked up or something. I don't know. Um, 
the residents also were unable to keep up with food demands in this town. Um, and eventually things like coffee, tea, and butter ended up being taken away from everybody because there just wasn't enough of it to go around. Uh, there was a separate communal table for meat and a resolution was actually soon passed that charged people extra for room and board if they chose to eat from the meat table. So basically what this means is, is every day for lunch and dinner, maybe even breakfast, everyone would go to this one place and there would just be this large spread of food. And at first start, you know, first started out, everything was fine. There was enough food to go around, but then, uh, the people started doing, you know, drinking more coffee and tea, eating more butter than there was a supply for. So that ended up disappearing. Then there wasn't enough meat to go around. And so to make sure or to incentivize people to not eat all of a sudden, now you had to start paying for your house if you wanted to eat from the meat table. So clearly this is not working out. Um, two years after the founding of Brook farm, uh, this is now, we're kind of going to go back and forth here a little bit um, between Brook Farm and this next town called Fruitlands. Uh, two years after the founding of Brook Farm, Charles Lane and Amo Bronson Alcott, which if that name sounds familiar, was the father of uh, famous author Louisa May Alcott. Uh, Charles and Alcott uh, purchased a 90-acre farm near uh, the Harvard campus and named it Fruitlands. Their goal was to start their own sort of transcendental utopia, but they took it a step farther than Brook Farm and mandated that no animals could be used or eaten on the farm. Not even use. You cannot even use horses or mules to plow. You can't use uh, cows to or chickens to create dairy products. Like, going super-duper hippie, super vegan on this one. Um, residents were allowed to only drink and bathe in unheated water, which in the summer might be all right in the winter, in the winter, when it's already like ice cold water and you're already constantly cold. That's a nightmare. Um, even more artificial lights, like candles were permitted so as not to quote prolong dark hours or cost them the brightness of morning. So basically like this sounds like a terrible place. I don't know who would willingly want to live in this place unless you are about to suffer from some sort of psychotic breakdown and just need to go off the grid completely. Um, shockingly, 14 people signed up to join this community. Um, some of the residents actually included former members of Brook Farm who came to Fruitlands because uh, Fruitlands had a, a deeper spiritual life, um, which, I mean, yeah, when you literally can't do much of anything, you're going to spend most of your time thinking about God. Um, one former Brook Farm resident, Samuel Larned, uh, was known throughout Fruitlands for his foul language, which he justified by saying that he was uplifting <laughs> the listeners, as long as it was said with a pure heart. So he could just, he could just call someone every four letter word in the book, but like he could claim he had good intentions behind it and it was okay. I, eh, I don't know. Um, other residents included a former insane asylum patient and a man who later left the community to go live with nudist because he believed that clothing, quote, stifled the spirit. So, like, you have some people, there were some people who thought, like, Fruitlands was not extreme enough. <laughs> and then they left. It just, it, it didn't make uh, a whole lot of sense. Um, 
Fruitlands ended up being dissolved seven months later uh, in January of 1842, or sorry, 1844, uh, because honestly, like, it's really hard to drink and bathe in unheated water when it's frozen solid. Like, yeah. Uh, There also weren't a lot of food choices uh, because the community had been founded one month after the planting schedule and nothing had time to grow. Uh, community leaders had also outlawed common, like this is so crazy. Community leaders outlawed common vegetables like carrots and potatoes because they grew downward and would upset the worms. Not, not even like growing downward and pointing to Satan, but just, Hey guys, it might make the worms a little mad that, that all these fruits are, uh, you know, are, are in their space and we need to respect the worms. Because worms have feelings. And so none of those vegetables, all right? You can plant like cucumbers and like cabbage and peas, maybe some beans, um, you know, all kinds of stuff. But uh, just, of course it failed. Of course it failed. Um, back in Brook Farm, uh, things were still going poorly, though comparatively better than at Fruitlands because at least, you know, Brook Farm still had food. Um, the town wasn't making the profits it had initially promised. And so Ripley appealed to the town's creditors to get $7,000 in debt forgiven. Uh, and then their central communal building, the, fa- the Phalanstery, that's a dumb name, the Phalanstery or the Phalanstery, probably the Phalanstery, the Phalanstery at Brook Farm. That sounds like a bad apartment complex. Anyway, um, that building burned down in March 1846, and people began moving out of the town at that point. Uh, two months later, Ripley himself gave up and left Brook Farm after the town had amassed $17,445 in debt, which Ripley uh, was actually forced to pay off himself over the next 16 years. So um, neither of those places worked out. Shocking, I know. Uh, our other story is of uh home washington uh and so after failing to establish a cooperative industrial colony in western washington state george allen oliver verity and bf odell uh plopped a rowboat into the puget sound in the summer of 1895 to go and find an isolated area to go start a new town uh they landed at von geldern cove on a small peninsula east of tacoma and their, their idea was to basically build an anarchist community, which sounds terrible and I feel like is the definition of an oxymoron. Like, you can't have a community full of people who are anti-establishment. Because <laughs> then it's literally complete anarchy. So anyway, um, the uh, within a year... Uh, however, the, you know, the plan, the plan originally was for everyone to voluntarily work together to govern the area rather than set up a formal government. So like, that's how you kind of get around that, but still like anarchist doesn't want any kind of structured rule whatsoever. And everyone working together to govern a thing is still some sort of structure, whatever, um, within a year. Uh, the three men had earned enough money to purchase the land, build cabins and bring their families out there. So it's really, they're starting out with three families who don't want any kind of government, but are building basically a governmental structure. Um, the community was named home and in 1898, the mutual home association, which is a form of structured authority was formed 
as a way to help members obtain land and build homes for themselves in the community. It was basically, if there's any group or organization that deserves to be overthrown by anarchists, it's a homeowners association. Like, the most useless organizations for the most part. Like, I live in an HOA. Most people, if you live in a neighborhood, live in an HOA. I pay 125 bucks a year, which is a joke, by the way. Not a month, a year. It's a good deal, but, like, what is that money going to? It's not the sidewalks. It's not the lamp posts. Like, is that just what they pay to cut the grass in the common areas? Like, I think that's it. That's it. That's all 125. And it's a big neighborhood. So like they're making money. But like what are you even doing? Anyway. A group of anarchists built a homeowners association. Which is just absurd to me. Um, The association's rules. Even though technically anarchists aren't supposed to have rules. uh, the, The homeowners association's rules stated. That they would help anyone who agreed to the community's anarchist ideals. So basically, in other words, you in, in order to live in home Washington, you needed to conform to nonconformity by conforming to a bunch of nonconformist rules. Like, it's, it does not make sense. None of this story makes any sense whatsoever. Um, by 1901, home occupied over 200 acres uh, on, the, on this island. And people who were too weird and too liberal, even for Seattle standards, began showing up, which says a lot. And the community was soon full of anarchists, nudists, radical feminists, and other fringe groups who routinely get ostracized from the mainstream world. Um, one day, Leon Solgaz, I'm, I'm assuming, like, I don't know how CZ and an SZ go together. Solgaz, but that's what I'm going with. Um, he, Leon Solgaz, um, a noted anarchist, uh, actually was part of William McKinley's assassination. I think as, completely assassinated William, uh, William McKinley, President William McKinley. Um, he lived in home, Washington, and once word got out after the assassination that that's where he lived home got this label from the rest of the country as just a place where all of these maniacal weirdos were living. Um, upon hearing about this community's existence, the grand army of the Republic, which is this uh, fraternal organization formed after the civil war and was composed of military veterans who didn't take kindly to people being weirdos, uh, made plans to wipe home off the map. So like, Grand Army of the Republic, kind of like the KKK, but like not racist, right? Um, The army actually made plans to invade the community and burn it to the ground. But when they arrived at the harbor to take a steamboat across the sound, the steamboat captain refused to take them. So I guess they just didn't have a plan B. And so they just went home um, to their home, not to home Washington. You get it. Um, the next year, Home lost its post office when they were accused of violating the Comstock Act, which prohibited using uh, post offices for the shipment or distribution of pornography and sex toys. Because, of course, look, you get a bunch of radical feminists and anarchists out there, there's going to be a lot of dildos flying around. All right. Going to be some weird porn being circulated by those kinds of people. All right. And look, totally, totally fine. Live your life, bro. But, uh, you know, you also have to abide 
by the rules that the government has put in place, regardless of your feelings about them, uh, regardless of how archaic and draconian those laws are. Because look, I get it. Like, I think it's pretty stupid that you can't use the post office to ship a, a sex doll or whatever. Like, who cares? Why does the government care what you're sticking wieners in? I don't think it's a big deal. Am I going to do it? Probably not. But whatever, man. If 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 shoving a huge dildo in your butt prevents you from uh, like burning down an entire elementary school, go for it. Do what you got to do, bud. But I don't know. The government's like, eh, no, I think you should. You should not. We don't want to be part of that. So. You go shoot the school because we're not touching gun laws either. We're going to go back down that road. Anyway, uh, not surprisingly, home began to fall apart. And in 1911, uh, the town had been divided into two groups, the nudes and the prudes, which like how how extreme in your beliefs do you have to be? To live in a community of anarchists and just other radical thinkers and then in turn label other people in that community as a prude. Like that's just completely unhinged at that point. You should probably be on a list. You know, you should probably be, you should probably get monitored a little bit because you're probably dangerous. Um, several people and because of this several you know it came about because several people had been arrested for skinny dipping and the editor for the town's paper was actually jailed for 2 months for encouraging uh those people known as the nudes obviously to fight back against law enforcement for not being allowed to live their lives now here's the thing um why does an anarchist community have law enforcement can I, I would like an explanation for that. Um, and like, honestly, like, I'm not sure which is worse. Like the fact that an anarchist community had a prison system, right? Because the people who were arrested for skinny dipping, like I said, they served jail, t- two months of jail time. Or the fact that an editor was thrown in jail in an anarchist community for basically writing an opinion piece. None of this makes sense at all. This is the like this is one of the dumbest places I've ever heard. Like and look, here's the thing. I can by the way, like by 1919 the homeowners association was charged with being quote wholly impotent. Couldn't agree more. And the entire community ended up being dissolved. And I like yeah, just complete and utter stupidity. And I get like I, I go pretty hard on more conservative minded people because I think a lot of that thinking is rooted in a fear of the unknown and uh, an irrational response of a lack of understanding of things. You know, it's like something new comes along and rather than being curious about it and investigating it and learning about it, the response is just, no, leave things as they are. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. And like, that's not a fun way to live. Like your society's never going to progress if that's the approach you take to everything. And so I tend to be a little more on the left, especially on social things. Because for me, it's just like, who gives it? Who cares? Like, whatever, let people do what they're going to do. 
and maybe let's figure out ways to protect people and let them do what they want to do in a non-confrontational, non-harmful way. Who cares, right? But there are people on the left who have thrown a little too much caution to the wind and who just see all trees and no forest and just every idea is a good idea and we should and and I don't think that's the way to live either like you got to you got to balance it out you know it's great to want to you know tear down the establishment and and you know talk about all of the things point out all of the issues and imperfections with things that's great but going in the complete opposite direction is probably not the answer and so then you have places like home who started out as a middle finger to the government and and the way that towns and and things were run and established and ended up just being another place that just happened to be inhabited by a bunch of weirdos who couldn't see all of the irony flowing around them and it's it's frustrating but it's completely hilarious to me at the same time all right that's the end though of the stories I realized like most of that last little bit could have been done in this segment, but I was also, I just didn't care. I was cause I was just so baffled by collective stupidity. All right. But let's go ahead and see what we learned today. What did we learn? Number one, if you are going to start uh, a commune, make sure that you start it uh, early enough where you have time to plant your crops so that you have food for the winter. Otherwise, maybe have a rule that says you got to buy food from outside sources and you can't be completely self-sustaining because otherwise you're not going to make it, right? Uh, Number two... If you're going to be an anarchist and you want to start a community, please understand that you are already losing at anarchy, right? Uh, As far as I understand it, right? Anarchy means that you are not a fan of structured government. You're not going to conform to any sort of standard. And so uh, a town full of and run by anarchists literally makes zero sense, right? And number three, uh, if you call yourself an anarchist, but then you get offended by something that someone says about the way that you live your life, uh, you should probably take a look inward, right? Because nothing about your worldview is going to make a whole lot of sense. Next week on Our Weird World, speaking of angry people who don't make a lot of great decisions, that's what our topic is going to be next week. We are looking at uh, three very angry people from history 
uh, and the things that they did that they thought were great ideas, but were really just silly and nonsensical. We are going to look at the stories of Carrie Nation, George Metesky, and Marvin Hemeyer next week. So uh, if you thought this week's episode was silly, next week's episode is going to make just about as much sense. So thank you all for listening. Keep telling uh, all your friends about this and keep it weird. 